All right, week 10 in the book of Hebrews. Uh, one of my favorite uh, hymnists, he only wrote a few hymns, but just, just stories. Reading his biographies, this is uh, John Newton, um, most well-known for his uh, uh, song of Amazing Grace, has a, a wild story. And when you, when you hear the lyrics, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When you read about this guy, and you read about the grace of God in his life, and as a wretched man as he was, God saved him. As a wretched man as I am, God saved me. But John Newton was uh, a captain of a, of a ship in the late, uh, kind of, you know, yeah, late 1700s. Uh, but he wasn't just a, a captain of any ship. He was actually a captain of a slave ship that he sailed the Middle Passage. And if you can imagine what that would have been like, capturing slaves from their continent, bringing them over to the United States, the, the kind of man that it would take to be in charge of that, right? That was John. John wasn't, I call him John, like I'm on a first name basis with him. Uh, I never met the man, uh, I haven't. Uh, but, but John, uh, he, he not only was that kind of man, uh, but he was also an alcoholic in, 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 a, in a really bad way. Uh, abusive to, obviously, the, the ship, uh, the people on the ship, uh, abusive to his crew, uh, but even to himself. Uh, that there's a, there's a story that he, he got so incredibly drunk on his own ship one time that he actually fell overboard, uh, and his crew hated him. So they didn't, you know, hit the brakes. I know you can't do that on a big boat. But they didn't, they didn't turn around, they didn't throw him a, a, you know, let's send out the little life raft or whatever. They didn't do any of that. They harpooned him, okay? They threw a harpoon at the guy, and it hit him in the hip, and they just drug him on board, okay? Why not, okay? And that's wild, okay? Uh, and so because of that, he limped the rest of his life, as you can imagine, uh, from this injury that he sustained at sea. But what's wild is that uh, this man hears the gospel, and, and I'm not likening John Newton to someone like the Apostle Paul uh, or Saul at the time, who was just a wicked man committing atrocities and murders, and then they meet Jesus, and their lives are changed, radically changed. Uh, John Newton becomes a pastor in England. He obviously quits the slave trade and becomes a huge abolitionist uh, in England. And, uh, and he, he never actually got to see uh, the end of the slave, or no, sorry, he saw the end of slave trade one month before he died in 1807, uh, which, is, which is pretty cool. But he has this, this phrase that he used to say, and, and, and John Newton, as we know, amazing grace, if you just like look up John Newton quotes, 99% of them are about God's grace. Uh, because he, he had been there, he had done it, he'd seen how wicked and awful he could be, humanity could be, and then saw the light of Christ in his life and made a radical transformation and he used to say this about his limp, uh, that he would have a limp. And he said, every step I take is a reminder of God's grace in my life. And as we look at this passage, as we've been looking at this passage, this idea of, of hold fast, that John Newton, you know, maybe the night he got drunk, he didn't, he didn't hold fast onto something. But the rest of his life, after he meets Jesus, he... He holds fast. He holds on tight. I, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to hold on to Jesus. I'm not going to go back to this old way of life. I'm going to hold on to Jesus. And so again, just in context, the, this passage or this book is written to 
early Christians. Uh, they were Jewish people, Hebrews, who had converted to Christianity. And the author's saying, hold on to Jesus. Don't go back to the world. Don't go back to this old way of life. Hold on, hold fast. And we're going to see this in a numerous uh, numbers of ways this morning within this passage. But Jesus is greater. We've talked about this. Jesus is greater than Old Testament prophets, greater than the angels. Uh, Jesus is greater than Old Testament law. Jesus is 100% human, 100% God. Jesus is uh, greater than all the situations the prophets wrote about. They didn't even know what they were writing about. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus, uh, loving Jesus is greater than uh, previous generations. What they were offered, Jesus is greater than rest. Jesus is the rest. Jesus is greater than earthly high priest. Jesus is greater than our insecurities and doubts about our salvation. That was, that's where we've been. Those have been the previous nine weeks. And as we jump into 10, and again, I don't want to just, because uh, I, I, I do think this is important to be reminded of, that as we look at salvation, what it is, it's eternal life. I can't lose something that's eternal. Salvation is a gift of God's grace. If I didn't do anything to earn it, I cannot do anything to unearn it. I can't do anything to lose it. We've been adopted into his family. And again, we need to rethink how we use that phrase. Can I lose my salvation? We're we're thinking about it wrong. We can't say that I lose my salvation. We have to say, did God lose me? The answer is no. Uh, And again, there's no sin that Christ can't and didn't die for. And that's true of John Newton, that's true of the Apostle Paul, it's true of myself. And so this week, this week's sermon is called Our Anchor in the Veil. We're going to be looking at Hebrews, uh, that's the wrong passage. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 9 through verse 20. That was last week, sorry, I forgot to change that. But we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter uh, 6, verses 9 through 20. Uh, and if you're, you're new to Christianity, you're checking out Christianity, you're going to get a lot of Bible today, and you're going to get a lot of story. You're going to kind of get a pretty big narrative of the Bible of why it is that we can stand on promises. Why is our faith secure? Why is it that we can believe in this? Uh, another thing is that we're going to be, I'm going to be talking about a lot of people, and so I'm going to do my best to explain who some of these characters, characters are. So the first kind of main point, I've got a couple main points, just walking through this passage is um, this phrase of that we or they inherit What has been promised? So starting in verse 9, it says, Even though we speak like this, and again, this goes back to last week of, uh, how do I know that I'm saved? Am I secure in my salvation? Am I holding on on to Jesus? Am I persevering? And there's this strong warning passage, right? Put your faith, keep your faith in Jesus. It says, even though we speak like this, Dear friends, that's a, I, I love our, our, our uh, translation that we read from the NIV, but that dear friends is a really weak translation. This is brothers and sisters. This is family of the church. You, you believe this with me? You're not just my friend. You're my brother. You're my sister. We're part of a bigger thing. Dave Jones, you're my brother in Christ. This is big. This is bigger than us. We are convinced now of better things in your case, in our case, in our family's case, the things that have to do with salvation. So he moves on, the author moves on here in verse 10. It says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown him as you have helped his people to continue to help them. 
We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end. We want you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. Okay, so we hold on, remain fast, hold on till the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but we want you to imitate those people who have gone before us through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. We can talk about Ben Jones, we can, or, uh, sorry, David, Dave Jones. We can talk about Will and Coley Craig. We can talk about people in our congregation, people that we love who have gone before us and say they remain faithful with patience and they have inherited what is promised. How do we do that? What, and what has been promised? What was promised to these people and the people that have gone before us? Continuing here in the passage, verse 13, it says, when God made his promise to Abraham, and I'm gonna, I don't want to just skip over this. The author of Hebrews is going to come back to Abraham a lot, but we're going to go and we're going to look a lot, about, uh, look, look a lot at, at Abraham this, uh, today. Since there was uh, no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, that is God. So God makes his promise to Abraham, and since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swears by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Adam received what was promised. Abraham, sorry, Abraham received what was promised. So Abraham, just like the people in the previous verses that we were looking at, they waited patiently, they, they believed, they held fast to God. Abraham received what was promised. What was promised to Abraham? Well, as we look at this passage, this passage that is referenced here in Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to this character uh, in this passage now named Abram. God hasn't changed his name to Abraham yet, but this is Abram. This is the one who believed the promises of God. And so it says this, uh, just for timeline, uh, we're only in Genesis chapter 12. So you have creation, everything's good. Then you have the fall, sin enters the world, chaos, Sin, death enters the world, and then you have humanity building this tower of, excuse me, there's a flood, giant flood, that's Noah, and then you have all of humanity saying, hey, let's all hang out together, even though they're commanded to go spread out through all the earth, and they build this tower of Babel, and then this is right after the tower of Babel, right after they build this tower, and God confuses the languages, and people get spread out all over the world, Um, right after that you have Abraham, or Abram. Abram, most likely, if you read the text just as it is, uh, probably was at the Tower of Babel, was probably there. And then his community, he finds the people all speak in his language and they go out into this country, uh, we, as we know later on as Ur of the Chaldeans. So the Lord says to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household, household to the land I will show you. Now again, try to put yourself in Abram's shoes. He knows nothing of this Yahweh. Very little. Some stories have been told, have been handed down throughout the generations. But all of a sudden, Yahweh shows up. God shows up. He actually hasn't even introduced his name as Yahweh yet. The Lord speaks, and Abram hears this voice. And it says, I will make you a great nation, right? I want you to go. I want you to leave everything behind, and I want you to follow me. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing, right? You're, you're going to multiply and you're going to have uh, children and all these different things. And I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse you and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And here is just right off the bat, just the gospel of all nations. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. 
So we have this promise that is made all the way back at the beginning of the Bible that now the author of Hebrews is bringing up. God made this promise to Abraham, but he did it in a certain way. The promise is made, right? But the thing is, promises break all the time. Right? Have you ever made a promise that was broken or that you broke? Uh, my wife and I, we've been watching uh, the show Smallville. Uh, it's uh, the teenage years of uh, Clark Kent, Superman. Dude's always breaking his promises, right? He's got this crush on some girl, and he's like, I'll promise I'll be with you tonight. I'm going to be at the party. Oh, man, someone's getting crushed by a vehicle. I better go over there and save him. And then he misses the party, and she's like, you promised. He's like, I know, but I had to, you know, I had this thing. Right? That's constantly happening, right? And that's just our culture. We just get used to like, yeah, promises, yeah, whatever. That's not what's happening here. This promise won't be broken, but how do we know? How do we know that this promise is going to be kept? Well, going back to this passage in Hebrews chapter 6, it says, people swear by someone greater than themselves, and then the oath confirms what was said and puts an end to, to the argument. All right, so someone, we swear, we do this still. This is culturally still exactly what happens, okay? Let me, let me give an example. Uh, we always swear by someone greater than ourselves. I swear on my grandmother's grave. Right, we always do that. I, I don't, my grandmas are still alive, but, but that's something that we do, right? That we say, I'm going to swear on this person or uh, a Thor. I swear on my father, Odin, right? All these different things. We always swear on someone greater than ourselves. And then we make an oath that confirms what is said, that puts an end to the argument, right? We make a promise in middle school. I promise, no, I'm going to... I'm going to pay you back, right? Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And you know what? I wasn't paid back. I never got to stick a needle in anyone's eye. Okay, I'm just saying, those promises were not made. They made a promise. They didn't keep their oath. What happens here? Something very different happens here. And this is still true culturally. That was, that was maybe some stupid examples. But I swear, I swear, Chase Bank, by my house, that I will pay this loan off, Right? And if I don't, guess what? They get my house. This is exactly, that's exactly what it is. So author says here, people swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and it puts an end to the argument because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. So let's go back. Let's look at this oath. What is this oath that the author of Hebrews is speaking of? Uh, you all know me. I love this guy's R.C. Sproul back in the day, just standard 70s, 80s, old school camera there with the chalkboard that you can't read his handwriting. Uh, he always did this. He'd always have this chalkboard and he'd write on it. I'm like, I, what are you writing? Uh, nobody writes cursive anymore, R.C. Didn't you know that? Didn't you know that was going to happen? Um, R.C. Sproul, though, he has this story, and, and forgive me, I, I share this story a lot, so I know, I've, I know some of you have heard me tell this story before, but he was giving a lecture in seminary, and, and someone came up to him and said, hey, can you sign my Bible uh, after he got done? And, he, and his response was, well, I, I didn't write it, uh, which is a great response to that. And, and they said, no, 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 I want you to sign it and then give your life verse. And he says, uh, I don't know what a life verse is, right? Uh, it just wasn't his culture. I grew up in that culture of having evangelists sign Bibles and and he says, no, 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 I, I, what's your life verse? He says, I don't know. I don't know what you mean. He says, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And R.C. says, well, the, uh, the book of Hebrews, I guess. And he said, okay, now narrow it down. What's the, what's the verse that the, that's the crux, what that all of Hebrews hinges on? And he goes, oh, now I get it. He goes, okay. 
Genesis 15, 17. He signs the Bible. Kid goes home next day or next class, comes up to RC after class, and he says, hey, you said Genesis 15, 17, but I don't think you meant Genesis 15, 17. This is what Genesis 15, 17 says. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. <laughs> that's, that's the verse that R.C. said, this is my favorite verse in the Bible. He says, you must be mistaken. And, and R.C. said, oh, no, no, that's exactly what I meant. Do you understand the entire Bible hinges on this verse? You take this out of the Bible, we don't know about it. We don't know if anything's true. So here's the context, going back a little bit, explaining this a little bit more. What is this promise? What is this oath that God makes? He says, Abram believed in the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. Again, God shows up, Abram, I'm gonna, I want you to leave everything behind and I'm gonna make you a great nation. You're gonna have this land. You're gonna have a child of promise. And, and Abram, Abram believes him. He goes, yeah, all right, I dig it. Look up at the stars, as many stars, that's all your descendants going to be. And he's like, yeah, all right, cool. I get it. Abram believed the Lord and God, he credited to him, Abram, as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Or you've said these things, but I hardly know anything about you. I believe you, but how do I know? I want to know. Right? So if, if you were going to make a contract, you go to your bank. How do I know? Or whatever, right? How, how do I know you're going to pay this back? This is God's answer. Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and young pigeons. Well, that doesn't sound like a promise. That's like a weird shopping list. What am I supposed to do with that? And so Abram brought all these things, and what happens? God, he cuts them in two. Uh, Abram, Abram bought, brought all these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged them in halves opposite of each other. And the birds, however, did not cut in half. And the birds of K, prey came down on the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. What's happening here? This is a, an old ritual of making a covenant that kings would do this to honor treaties. That they would take animals, rip them in half. It's really gruesome. I understand that. They'd, they'd separate them and they would walk arm in arm, hand in hand, whatever it was. And they would or just walk through it together to symbolize, if I don't keep my promise, if I don't keep my treaty with you, let it be done to me as it is done to these animals. So that's the stage that's being set here. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not of their own. This is the, the being enslaved in, in Egypt and they'll be mistreated there. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. They're going to come back to this land that was promised. They're going to defeat the Amorites, but not yet. And then, then here's verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord God made a covenant with Abram. Now what's happening here? So God makes this covenant with Abram, but now instead of saying, Abram, I want you to walk through this this, this, these carcasses with me. 
So that Abram, if you break this covenant, let this be happened to you. He doesn't. He walks through, God walks through by himself and he makes a covenant with himself. And he says, if I don't keep this covenant with you, let this be done to me. In other words, God says, I'm staking my own deity on making sure that this promise stays true. That if this promise doesn't happen, I cease to exist. That's the promise. Why? Because there's no greater name than God. He has to swear by himself. So he swears by himself. Abram does nothing. God knows there's no greater name to swear by, so he swears by himself, and he passes through the animals alone. So how do we know that the promise will be kept? Right? That was Abraham. That was thousands of years ago. How do we know that this promise is going to be kept well, let's go back to our book of Hebrews. It says, God did this thing by two unchangeable things. What are the two unchangeable things? His word or swearing this word. I, I swear this is going to happen. And his oath, this covenant. These two unchangeable things in which it is possible for God to lie. He doubles down. It's impossible for God to lie. Who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope for an anchor for the soul firm and secure. So we who have fled and take hold of the hope set before us, be greatly encouraged. What is the hope set before us? How do we have this hope? God made his promise to Abraham, but because God made a new covenant, a new covenant in Jesus Christ, he made another covenant with himself, but no longer is it God passing through the carcasses of dead animals. God becomes the animal that's going to die. It's an oath, a covenant that makes with himself with the shedding of his own blood. And that should be encouraging. How do I know I can hold fast? Because God made a promise then and he doubled down on it even with the death of his own son and his blood. That should be encouraging. And this promise that God made with himself, if it doesn't come true, then God will cease to exist. And I think that we can hold tight to that promise. And then it talks about this hope that we have as an anchor. We all know what an anchor is. I'm not necessarily a, a big boat guy. Uh, big boats freak me out. Ocean freaks me out, man. I, I don't know what's in it. Uh, it's not it's scary, man. Uh, I'm not a fan of the ocean, but if I had, was on a really big boat, I want to know that there's a really good anchor, right? And these huge boats have these huge anchors. They drop it down and it lashes on to solid, solid ground. But what's interesting is that we use this language. We know what an anchor is in our context. What's really cool about this passage is it meant the exact same thing back then. And it was even used in language of like, what is my anchor? Uh, Pythagoras, uh, you know, the Pythagorean theorem. Uh, Pythagoras, the mathematician, he said this. He said, wealth is a weak anchor. Fame is still weaker. What then are the anchors which are strong? Wisdom, great heartedness, courage. These are the anchors which no storm can shake. And what's interesting is wise, as talented as Pythagoras was, he didn't anchor himself in 
the good news of Christ because we can all be courageous and we can lose that. We can all have good hearted and be brought face to face and lose that. We can be wise, but there's always somebody wiser. As I was looking for this anchor in the veil, that this is massive storm. This was another church. I don't know the name of the church, but um, anchor beyond the veil. Right, that we have this anchor and a veil is just another name for a, for a storm, a swell. And this picture just, just drives my logical mind crazy. Um, how is this giant anchor being shot up into the clouds? Um, what is it latching onto? It's just confusing to me, uh, but I get it. I get the premise of this, okay? But you got these ships that are just going crazy on the surface. It's chaos, but they're grounded. They're grounded on something safe, and secure. And again, what's really cool though about this is that this phrase and what's happening here in the, uh, the book of Hebrews and what the author is doing here is playing this, this language, this, 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 you know, a, a, I don't know, some kind of a literary device of a double meaning with this anchor in the veil, anchor in the curtain. So he says this, or they say this in verse 19, we have a hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, right? That in the midst of a storm, I'm, I'm secure in, the, in a veil. But then it enters in the inner sanctuary. This anchor enters the inner sanctuary behind the veil, behind the curtain. I know I've shared this a lot of times, but this old temple that uh, Christ would have seen, the temple of Herod, that was massive, that you had kind of that in, those, in those big, huge gold doors there, and you could see, you can hardly even see how tiny the people are in comparison to this. They'd go in through those doors, and they'd enter the holy place. Only priests were allowed in there. They'd go into the holy place, but then behind this massive curtain, that was a good, it was a, a, a breadth of a hand, thick, you know, five to six inches thick was this curtain. And behind that was the holy of holies, the most holy place. The Ark of the Covenant would be, the high priest would go in there one day out of the year, perform a sacrifice, and get out. Why? Because you approached God with fear and trembling. God was far off for almost everyone except for one priest one day out of the year. It's terrifying. But now, now what happens? Jesus says it is finished. He gives up his spirit. And it says the veil in the temple was torn in half from top to bottom. That God rips this in half. And what happens? He now invades the space that he's no longer far off. He's no longer hidden behind a curtain that keeps people safe. He says, no, 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 I'm here. I'm claiming dominion over this. Why? Because the promise was kept. The promise was kept in Jesus and my son, my blood was shed for you and for my sins. So this oath, this covenant, his blood, now all people are brought near. So the end of the passage here, I just want to finish it. I'm not really going to make a lot of comments on this. It says, uh, we're our forerunner. Jesus has entered on our behalf. Jesus going through the veil. Jesus being our, our mediator, our arbiter that is between us and God has entered in on our behalf. And he has become our high priest forever, which we talked about high priest a little bit a couple weeks ago, but in the order of Melchizedek. Again, we're, who's this Melchizedek? Next week. Next week, we're going to talk about that. Uh, so that's all I'm going to say about Melchizedek. Uh, great guy, uh, but we'll learn more about him next week. So Jesus being our anchor, in the veil allows us to find grace and help us when we're in a stormy veil in our time of need. We already looked at this passage, but this is Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest 
who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God. Here it is again. Let us hold firmly to the faith that we possess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he never sinned. Here it is. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. How can we do that? There's fear and trembling. It's unapproachable. How do we do that? Because Jesus is our anchor in the veil, in beyond the curtain, into the almost holy place. And we can do this with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need, to help the Jones family in their time of need, to help us with whatever it is that we're struggling with. It could be, it could be addiction. It could be infertility. It could be a job loss. It could be needing, wanting a promotion, needing a promotion. It could be uh, falling behind on, on a payment or a loan or whatever it may be. I need grace. And God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is good. It is empowering. And, it, and it's, again, it's, it's a double-sided sword of we receive grace, but it's that grace that allows us to approach the throne of grace to find our help in the time of need. John Newton once said this, if the Lord be with us, we have no cause of fear. His eye is upon us, his arm over us, his ear open to our prayer, his grace sufficient, his promise unchangeable. We can stand on these promises fast and secure. And so gospel application is hold fast. You, whoever you are, hold fast. Hold fast to Christ in every circumstance to the anchor in the veil. How do we get to do this? Because the promise that was made equals unchangeability. He can't undo the covenant which he's made with his own blood. It means his grace equals sufficient because he said it would be. My grace is sufficient for you. And God is not a liar. He doubled down on what he has said. So in my boat, when your boat is being rocked, we have an anchor to hold within that stormy veil. When my anchor also holds within the veil of the presence of God.